0: This is KUAF, a listener supported service of the University of Arkansas, and this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday afternoon, October 6th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ahead this hour, we'll check in with the president of the Northwest Arkansas NAACP. The branch was established with conversations that began in 2013 and an inaugural meeting in 2014. The chapter's president, Dr. Kobe Davis, tells us there's been much work done by the organization during the past 18 months. Our conversation in just a few minutes. The Arkansas Department of Health is adding 23 fatal cases of COVID-19 to the state's total. 7,775 Arkansans have now died from the disease. There are 747 new cases in the most recent report. That continues a decline of daily new cases over the past two weeks. Active cases dropped by 439. There are five fewer hospital patients in Arkansas with the virus compared to this time yesterday. A bill that would allow Arkansans to opt out of COVID-19 vaccine mandates imposed by employers is now one step closer to becoming law. Members of the House Public Health, Welfare and Labor Committee yesterday approved Senate Bill 739, sponsored by Republican Senator Kim Hammer of Benton. It would require employers who require vaccines to provide an exemption process for people not choosing to get vaccinated. That could include weekly testing or twice yearly testing for immunity from the virus. Matt Gilmore with the Arkansas Department of Health says that may not be frequent enough to ensure workers aren't inadvertently spreading COVID nineteen.
1: You know, we don't really know as far as the time frame as to what length of immunity is 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 uh, is with the virus. Uh, looking at about ninety days, so about three times, or excuse me, every every three months is what we uh, looked at. At that, we appreciate what the bill is is trying to do in some ways, but I think there's lots of things that need to be answered and fleshed out
0: under the proposal. The cost of testing would fall on the employee if federal or state funds are not available. The bill passed on a voice vote and now goes to the full House for a final vote. A bill that would divide two of Arkansas's most populous counties into different congressional districts has been advanced in the legislature. The Senate State Agencies and Governmental Affairs Committee yesterday approved legislation proposed by Senator Jane English, a Republican of North Little Rock. Senate Bill 743 would divide both Pulaski County and Sebastian County into separate congressional districts. Republican Senator Matthew Pitch of Fort Smith spoke against it.
1: But we're a long way away from this Capitol when you're in Sebastian County, and we've had county judges, two mayors, and 24 CEOs request this committee to consider them in a fair and equitable manner. And they don't think that's being done.
0: Sebastian County, which includes Fort Smith, has been split into two districts for the past decade since the previous redistricting. Senator Linda Chesterfield, a Democrat of Little Rock, also argued against the proposal.
2: It plays hell with one of the poorest areas of Pulaski County, an area that is rich in African-Americans. And on its face, it says that our particular area of Pulaski County is less valuable than the other parts of Pulaski County.
0: The proposed map would place parts of Pulaski County into three separate congressional districts. Proponents of the bill argue it's necessary to divide heavily populated counties in order to make sure each congressional district has approximately the same number of people represented. The next community cookout conversation to discuss COVID relief fund spending in Washington County is scheduled for tonight in Farmington. Members of the Washington County Quorum Court and other elected officials are scheduled to gather in Farmington City Park tonight from 6 to 8. The meeting will also be conducted by Zoom. We can connect you with that link at OzarksAtLarge.com. New flights from Northwest Arkansas National Airport to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, begin later this week. XNA officials announced the first flight from Airline Allegiant is scheduled for Friday morning. And the Razorback volleyball team back in action tonight. Arkansas 11-4 overall and 2-2 in SEC play. will be in Oxford, Mississippi to play Mississippi tonight. (laughs) Wednesday to you. This is Ozarks at Large. The NAACP was founded in the early part of the 20th century. The Northwest Arkansas branch formed through conversations and then an inaugural luncheon in the years 2013 and 14. Since, the branch has worked to improve this region when it comes to education, social justice, economic equity, and other matters. Yesterday, we reached out to Dr. Kobe Davis, the president of the Northwest Arkansas NAACP, find out how the organization has been working during the difficult last 18 months. He says there's been much work. Um, You
2: know, um, interestingly, the last year has been really a good time for us. Um, Through the pandemic, we've been able to engage people in ways that we hadn't previously, Um, hence hosting quite a few uh, forums just about getting information. Uh, I'd say the biggest thing that we do in the NAACP is we are a receptacle of connections and information. Um, We are looking for the things that people need to know about or have questions about and trying to connect them to those things. Uh, We had a really great um, forum with um, representatives from Northwest Arkansas Police Forces. That was a great experience for police chiefs and representatives from those departments to talk to the black community about how should we interact with each other what does that look like from your stance and and we were able to ask questions and it was it was a great door opener um we have um we did a lot to support schools this past school year and just getting started with um with going back to school because of covid and we did a whole campaign on getting masks to kids and then we gave out thousands of masks to um, each of the school districts in the area, so it was really that was a fun experience as well as something that I know schools appreciated and was really needed. We've also continued that education effort because we know there's been a lot of loss of learning where we're partnering with a local elementary school to try to get some books in kids' hands and and give them some more access to reading and um, and interacting with literature. So uh, that's one thing that we've worked on. We're constantly focused on, civil rights. Um, Interestingly enough, there's a lot of people that in Northwest Arkansas still at times find themselves um, in situations where their civil rights are being violated. And so sometimes those are more private things that we deal with, but still that we're very engaged in as as well. And uh, that happened a lot during the pandemic. Um, There were a lot of little situations where people felt as if, Um, They were not safe in their community and just needed some support.
0: Curious, I don't want you to reveal any confidences or anything like that, but in a situation where someone doesn't feel safe, what can you do to show support?
2: So there is some confusion about what the NAACP's role is in civil matters. Um, At the local branch level, we do not employ attorneys. So typically it would just be a conversation conversation. where we would try to discuss, um, um, really more like an arbitration where we just discuss what issues or concerns there are many times, just by having that discussion with us at the table can provide some resolution. Um, if we're not able to provide the resolutions at our level locally, then we would engage the, the state chapter and, and never in my time have we had to go that far. Um, but even if it, still cannot find any revolution, a resolution, then we would um, engage the national chapter. And then, of course, they do have a legal team that could step in and help and support. Um, we would hope that it would never get to that. We hope that the conversations are such that we're able to resolve a lot of those things here. And, and so far, we have been able to do that.
0: I imagine just being able to have an organization uh, to go to. I mean, so many of us who live in northwest Arkansas are not you know, a minority population and can't understand, you know, that lived experience. So I imagine just having the NAACP here to be able to go to is is a godsend for many people. No,
2: it really is. Um, I think for some people who feel very alone in their community, um, many times you don't know where to turn. But because we are the oldest civil rights organization in the country, uh, people know our name. And so they'll reach out. Uh, there's a hotline number you can call through the state website. Um, and uh, from that number, they can connect you with your local chapter. And so um, so many people go that route uh, when they're trying to find a way to get some support uh, if they feel isolated.
0: I know partnerships are important as well. And and there was the, the project that you did with St. James Missionary Baptist Church and the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese. Uh, And I think you were able to raise somewhere close to 10,000 pounds of food.
2: Yes. No, that was a really amazing thing. We have to thank GenPAC, which is a private organization, um, larger company, but uh, they have a uh, office in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, They partnered with us on raising $10,000. To buy food to give to local pantries, and so it was actually the st. James pantry, um, the Marshallese pantry, as well as roots, um, which is a Hispanic pantry and we were able to give roughly three thousand pounds of food to each of those pantries and um, we are planning to actually host them at our November meeting to talk a little bit about how that impacted their individual organization. and and even to um, maybe expound upon how people can continue to be involved and continue to support, because we know we're entering into a season where, uh, you know, pantries will be in high demand and of great need.
0: What can, if someone's listening to our conversation, interested in becoming involved more, how do they do it? Who, Who can become involved?
2: Anyone can be a member. I think sometimes people believe that, the NAACP is only for African-American people. Um, it truly is for everyone. We want everyone to be involved. We would love to have all voices at the table. We need we need allies of every racial demographic uh, to be a part of the conversation because there are things sometimes that we forget. We're about civil rights and equality for everyone. Uh, the easiest way for us is for you to go to our website, um, which is just nwanaacp.org, or even... Um, uh, we do a lot of traffic on Instagram, and so you could go to our Instagram page, which is also N-W-A-N-A-A-C-P.
0: What What drew you to becoming involved, not just involved, but to become the president of of the NAACP in Northwest Arkansas? Uh,
2: it's actually a long history. Uh, I can thank my mother. <laughs> so, I grew up in Mississippi, and uh, my mom uh, made lots of um, lots of attempts to just make sure that I understood what was going on in Black culture in general and made sure that we were aware. She had been very involved in her local sorority, and because of those events that they would host and such, it led me to be involved in that, in the, the youth events with um, their sorority. And then from there, there were other uh, Young black organizations that I was involved in growing up. We took trips. We went to sites of civil rights, and and so it just always was something that I had talked about and had been involved in, and so it was it was almost it was almost impossible for me not to continue to be engaged in the conversation. Uh, when I moved to Northwest Arkansas, one of my very first meetings was, was with Dr. John L. Cobert, who currently serves as superintendent of Fayetteville Schools, and uh, it was. Interesting, at that time, he was not the superintendent, but he had he had been dreaming of a day that we would have an NAACP in Northwest Arkansas. And, and I, said, I said, I would love to be involved. And so he, uh, I guess maybe about a year later, after I'd been here for a while, he reached out and said, we're doing it. And so I started right away with him. He was the founding president of that organization. And we, we had been together working on that work. Since then. And we probably started about 2013 is when we started having a lot of those initial meetings before the branch was formed.
0: I'm wondering, do you think about, you know, you, you mentioned how your mom made sure you were informed and engaged and aware. Do you think about that with young people now and pass, passing the baton and making sure you keep young people engaged, aware?
2: No, for sure, because it's very easy to... Um, Kind of benefit from all of the advantages of those who've gone before, and not realize that there is still work to be done. Uh, I think for a long time, I just kind of enjoyed um, all of the uh, all of the privileges of the time that I was born into. I think we've definitely seen some times where those privileges have been challenged, and so reminding us that um, that there's still work to be done. Um, we have just recently started our youth council, which is um, which is an organization within the NAACP. So you can be anyone 25 or younger. We're really focused on teens, where they will come together and do things where they will go and visit museums. They will talk about what's current and what's happening in um, minority America, as well as um, possibly visiting some HBCUs. Um, But this will be a time for those youth to be able to express some of their concerns about what's going on in the world, but then also making sure they're aware. And So we invite families to join the NAACP, but bring your kids along because, no, you're right, it starts when we're young, um, just getting involved in understanding the impact.
0: Kobe Davis is the president of the Northwest Arkansas branch of the NAACP. He spoke with us yesterday. You can learn much more about the organization at NWANAACP.org. You can follow the group on Instagram. Upcoming meetings of the group, still on Zoom for now, will concentrate on continued efforts to be safe during a pandemic, food insecurity in the region, and in December, a conversation about critical race theory. This is Ozarks at Large.
3: The McMichael Lecture Series at St. Paul's welcomes Zachary Crow, the director of Decarcerate, Saturday, October 9th, for a reception and lecture regarding the past, present, and future of the criminal injustice system in Arkansas. Sunday, October 10th at 10 a.m. includes a panel discussion on transformative justice. PaulsFay.org for more information.
0: J.B. Hunt is giving more than $1 million to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The gift, actually $1.25 million, is to support programs dedicated to both saving lives and to bringing hope to people affected by suicide. A press release says the Lowell-based company wants to lend support to new inclusive ways to have positive impacts on those who are at risk for suicide or struggling with mental health. And Burrell Behavioral Health will use a $625,000 grant for mental health education. They work with more than 40,000 clients in Arkansas and Missouri and will use the money provided by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to expand efforts to prevent suicide by increasing understanding and recognition of warning signs and help individuals learn the correct skills to help and support someone who may be in a mental health crisis. A press release from Burrell Behavioral Health says, on average, Somebody in Arkansas dies by suicide every 16 hours. And a reminder that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255.
1: The levee system built after Hurricane Katrina has helped protect New Orleans, but for communities outside the city, those levees actually make flooding worse.
4: When the federal government put the giant levee systems around all of us and then put the largest pump in the world two and a half miles, that's the government saying, we don't want you there
1: anymore. I'm Elsa Chang. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF and available anywhere on the KUAF app. The latest episode of Undisciplined is out today. It's our podcast created in collaboration with the African and African-American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Host Karee Banton is joined by her graduate assistant, Warrington Sabri and University of Arkansas political science professor, Nesha Baptiste, to discuss the science of political science and the evolution of protests in America. Here's an excerpt from this latest episode.
3: Well, Warrenton, my scholar activist in training, are you excited for today's conversation?
5: Absolutely, Dr. Bannon. Listening to two of my beloved mentors talk politics and protests is definitely something that I'm excited and honored to be a part of.
3: Right. Sure. Yes, of course. Right. I figured you'd enjoy the politics. Whoa, whoa,
5: whoa, whoa, wait, okay. wait, wait. Now, we not, Nobody said I enjoy politics. Uh,
4: well, uh, don't you have a master's in political science?
5: Ah, you're doing what most people do when I tell them I study political science. I should have expected that from a historian.
3: Oh, uh, what? Oh, no. Oh, no, sir. We're not going <laughs> to do that. We are not going
5: to do that. Well, I mean, like you said, as, I, as you said, as I've completed my master's in political science. I feel that it is appropriate to say that as a denizen of the field... Oh,
6: denizen... <laughs> Where are you getting these words?
5: Whatever. (laughs) Whose
3: business is (laughs) it?
5: As I was saying, as a denizen of the field, I feel that it would be inaccurate and insufficient to reduce the study to politics.
3: What do you mean, politics? (laughs) What do y'all be doing over there in political science if you don't be enjoying politics?
5: (laughs) I'm glad you asked, Dr. Benton. I said that you did what most people do when I tell them I study political science, and that is, forget about the science. Now, we are not the same as your biologies and chemistries, the quote-unquote hard sciences, and a big reason for that, I think, is because of the degree of variation in findings gathered from political science research. In other words, you can create scientific laws, gravity, motion, conservation of energy— But that is not quite the case with political science. That's because the state of nature, quote-unquote, that the hard sciences examine in their research is not the nature that is studied by political scientists. In the very abstract, we study the nature of people and the interactions that they have amongst one another, but then place that in the context of power. So, how people interact in order to gain and maintain power, and the ways in which people interact as a result of presiding under said power. And so, when I think of politics, as you say, I think of Red, Blue, CNN, Fox, warring sides, corrupt leaders, and rich white people.
3: And Beyonce.
5: (laughs) And LeBron James, sure. (laughs) So, these are elements of political science, including the rich white people, But they overlook the theories, methodologies, empirical data, and social experiments that aim to fix everything that is wrong with politics. In other words, politics is a rigged game that only has one type of winner. Political science is a discipline that studies the state of people and their relations to and within institutions of power. The way they communicate and mobilize, their psychology how they behave, how they engage. And we study political science, well, at least some of us do, not just to know the three branches of government and a bill that's on Capitol Hill, but to reimagine in real time the structures, institutions, and systems of power in order to govern better, represent better, relate internationally better, choose better leaders, make laws better, distribute resources better, and ultimately, Dr. Benton, make people's lives better. Well,
3: well, well taught that thing (laughs) taught that thing young buckaroo you better defend your little discipline there
5: (laughs) yes ma'am yes ma'am I sure will but that is the reason that I'm excited for this episode not because we will talk politics but for the jewels that will be dropped and I can hopefully take these jewels with me on my journey towards making our systems work better for everyone
3: We're joined by Dr. Nejia Kofi-Baptiste, a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas.
7: Thank you, Dr. Benton and Warrington, for having me on your magnanimous podcast. I really appreciate you allowing me to join y'all.
3: You know, you and Warrington have this in common, you know, political protests. Does it? actually work? I want I want you to tell me because, you know, as someone who likes to bring the noise, you know, and bring the heat, um, does it actually work and does it have to be nonviolent?
7: Does it work? Yeah. Right? I think you as a historian and me as a historian as well, because as a Black political scientist, we don't believe in just confining ourselves to politics, the political arena, the partisanship. We believe in using history sociology, psychology, whatever is needed in order to understand the phenomenon, right? And protest and activism is inherent in being a black scholar, as you understand it, and as I understand it, and as I was trained. And I was trained that protest is, is just as important as voting, uh, especially within the black community. Um, I say this all the time, voting is not enough. Activism is a must. <laughs> now, protests have been used. We're dealing with the actual political system. Again, like I said, when people say the system, right, they're not just saying any frivolous words, right? Within political science, there's something called systems theory by David Easton. You make demands on the system, and they are supposed to process it, and then policy is supposed to come out. But as uh, some scholars have argued, when we put black demands on the system, We deal with co-optation and neglect and oppression and domination. And so, as King said, a protest is the language of the unheard. And we have to just come to grips with the reality of it It doesn't matter how we protest in the 21st century. Throughout history, it has always been seen as a threat to the American society. When King protested, he was arrested 15 times. I I want that documented. 15 times, at least. He was seen as a rebel rouser and radical, not the not the sanitized, whitewashed. I have a dream. Content of character, not color by skin, color colorblind. Not the skin.
3: huggable Martin Luther King.
7: Not the dream King. I'm talking about the, the, the King that said in the very same speech, "America has written a blank check with the Constitution, and every time we go to cast that check, it comes back insufficient funds." Oh, that King. That's the King I'm talking about. The, what do we go from here, chaos? for community? Is it too late, King? That's the one I, I like to quote. I think the, the argument is, and the understanding of most people is, that just like with methodology, there's one type of way to protest. There is no one type of way to protest. Even these uprisings that we saw in Ferguson and in Baltimore, where I'm actually from, that side of Baltimore, they are considered uprisings. What a riot looks like is what happened in 1868 in Wilmington, North Carolina, when white folks went in there. And kill black folks simply because they had businesses and were millionaires.
3: Or January 6th.
7: Or all the way up until now. There's gonna always be white pushback to black progress. And does it work? I think sometimes we gotta understand what is it is what it is that we're trying to to get, right? Because very often does our protest lead to a policy outcome. More than not, what it has led to is a shifting in the paradigm and the ideological orientation within the black community to let us understand that they can't change us, right? That we came together and we are strong and we are able to still do it. And it may take a a, a long time, as King said, the more awkward universe bends, as long as a while, but it bends towards justice. But nothing bends without pressure. And you can't continue to use the same strategy with a system that is as sophisticated as the American white supremacy system. You can't use the same strategy because it will adapt to it. And so that's why Black Lives Matter and these new contemporary movements are so important because they came up with non-traditional, non-conventional means of political protest. Because we were, we had already made the shift in 1972 from protest to politics, according to Bayard Rustin, who was considered the architect of the civil rights movement, the first Black queer civil rights leader that nobody really talks about. Mm -hmm. And Bayard Rustin said we, we we were making a shift from protest to politics, which means that they no longer dealt with the grassroots. Right. They only dealt with uh, the National Association for certain people, for advancing of certain people. Right. They only cared about the middle class and you know getting jobs and such and such. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is the same issue that we were dealing with in 1965. And we're still dealing with in 2021. So, and literally, I have my to do a critical analysis of the signs that's being held at a pro- Black Child Lives Matter protest. And a protest that was done in 1964 and 65. The signs are identical. We want jobs. We want the inner police brutality. We want better education. How are we? And, and I had a wife who said, How are we still dealing with these issues in 2021? Because protesting incrementally works, right? The way that we do it, which is nonviolent, right? That's the way that we had adapted after King, which is nonviolent. But that was the way that we protested before King before the Civil Rights Movement, before Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. The irony is that when you look at Stokic Carmichael, he he shows us the split. Because when Stokic Carmichael goes from Stokic Carmichael to Quarman to Rae, Carmichael was actually part of the Civil Rights Movement. Then he became the part of the split, oh. the oh. City, Nonviolent coordinator Committee, with um, Ella Baker, and then the Black Power Movement. And so when you, affect, you, you see the evolutionary shifts, it's all about strategies, right? Protesting is really about strategies. Does it work? Sometimes. <laughs> Does it work? Sometimes. It doesn't produce everything we want. Absolutely not. Can we continue to do nonviolent tactics and think it's going to work? I think we learned with the last Black Lives Matter movement that the American system has adjusted to protest. It doesn't have the same effect. The whole point of protesting was to appeal to the moral dilemma. Using Gandhi's strategy, where you would line people up, one person would get injured by the police on camera, and then they'll put somebody else up and they get injured by the police on camera. They will beat them. Well, if now the system knows that if we just don't beat them, they don't get the same response. And even we got to the point where they would tell protesters when to march, where to march, and what time, and how long they can march, that's not a protest to me. That's really just a fitness exercise, really, for the most part, because the system is telling you where to go and what to do. And eventually, you have to use... Uh, methods that would, uh, would not traditionally be used. Um, and that's why the Black Panther Party was so radical. The Black Panther Party produced a 10-point plan about things that they wanted, and they helped create the Before and School program, Free Lunch, various programs that the public schools use to this day. And the idea of self-defense was something that was created within the Black Power the Black Nationalist Movement.
0: You can hear more of this conversation in the full episode of Undisciplined, wherever you get your podcast, Undisciplined is produced by Ozarks at Larges' Matthew Moore.
3: Here's how neuroscientist Kimberly Noble explains her research to her own child. We are trying to understand if helping kids' families by giving them more money is going to
4: make it easier for them to do well in school and in life. Ideas on healthy brain development at every stage of life. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: You can hear the TED Radio Hour Sunday afternoon at 1 on KUAF and by listening to KUAF on your smart speaker when you ask it to please play KUAF. The future school of Fort Smith, an open enrollment public charter high school located downtown in the historic Belgrove District, is dedicating a new classroom building Friday afternoon at 1. Trish Flanagan is the future school founder and strategic planner.
6: Our campus expands the entire city block. So when we started, we had the original building that we basically were able to raise money to renovate a couple of areas at a time every summer to add more classrooms. But our students, half of them, have been in uh, portable, temporary, modular units Uh, until now. And so now we've just added 18 uh, classrooms to our footprint on campus. We have a new welcome center. We've totally rearranged the layout of campus. And so it's much more modern, up-to-date, and student-centered.
0: Future School has a majority-minority enrollment with 270 students, 70% low-income, Flanagan says, with 50 part- and full-time teaching and support staff. The $6 million new facility is supported with federal charter expansion funding state public facilities funding, grants from the Walton family and Wingate Foundations, and by local donors.
6: the beginning of future school, it has always been uh, you know, an underdog story, a very unlikely story. We opened, got approved, sorry, we got approved, we opened, got our first students all within two years um, from the very beginning. And that's really remarkable. And so this is just another, our expansion in our building, is another example of the the demand and the need for what we're doing for high school kids.
0: The dedication in partnership with the Ford Smith Chamber of Commerce will take place at 622 North Seventh Street. Mask and social distancing required, students and teachers will be on hand to meet the public. This is Ozarks at large. This week, Charlie Allison, the executive editor with University Relations at the University of Arkansas, is thinking about the U of A's past and future. This is his latest tour through the university's history as observation of the school's sesquicentennial.
1: Several months ago, I got to tag along on a historical tour of the University of Arkansas campus. The tour leaders told us about events connected with the civil rights movement at the university during the late 1960s and early 1970s. The movement here on the U of A campus was pushed forward back then by a student organization called Black Americans for Democracy, or better known by its acronym B.A.D., or B.A.D., and back then, bad was good. It was cool, hip, with it, dope you might say. The tour was conducted by honor students who participated in an honors college forum, taught in the fall of 2020 by then provost and now interim chancellor Charles Robinson. The first student to talk with us, a young black woman, told us about her evolution in thinking about the university as she participated in the forum and studied the university's issues in dealing with race during the civil rights era. Now, I'm an old white guy, and I have absolutely no sense what it's like to be young anymore, much less a young black woman. Books and movies give me glimpses, but they're a shallow substitute for knowing another person's life and thoughts. So I was interested to get her glimpse into the issue of race on campus, as well as some of the many threads woven into that issue. She told our tour group that she began the honors forum with some questions, including why are we still dealing with many of the same issues that were happening 50 years ago. At the beginning of the class, her own hypothesis was that the administration and staff of the university must shoulder some of the blame for the inadequacies of the university's response to racial issues. But during the honors forum, she dug into some of the history and listened to panelists and alumni who spoke with the students. And our student tour guide said that their thoughts and remarks changed her mind and she reconsidered her initial thoughts. She developed a new, more complex hypothesis, more along the lines that the university, good and bad, is in some measure a product and reflection of our surrounding environment and culture. Changing the university culture might be dependent on changing the culture of Arkansas and the South. I really appreciated hearing her thoughts and especially seeing her willingness to reconsider her original hypothesis. That's a good trait to see in a researcher. New evidence points us toward new thoughts. The new thoughts lead us to more inspection and more new thoughts, and we hopefully move toward better understanding and solutions for a particular issue. Listening to her made me think that a closer look at the university's first board of trustees, essentially the first administrators, might provide some background and an additional way for us to look at the university today. When the Arkansas legislature created the university 150 years ago, It appointed 10 members of the first board of trustees. An 11th member, the state superintendent of education, was elected by Arkansas voters and served as a non-voting president of the board. In significant ways, the first trustees were not like the vast majority of trustees who followed them. First of all, none of them were born in Arkansas. None of them were even born in the South. Two were born in Germany, and the rest were born in the northern part of the United States. Next at least 10 of them, and I I think probably all 11, served in the Union Army during the Civil War, most of them at an elevated rank, from lieutenant colonel through brigadier general. Last, politically, all of them were Republicans, which may come as a surprise, but shouldn't, given the particular time period, the era of Reconstruction in Arkansas. They were the victors in the Civil War. The losers... Uh, the men who had committed insurrection by taking up arms against the United States to preserve slavery and who had fought with the Confederate Army, they lost not only the war, but their right to vote and to hold elective office after the war. So Republicans held power in the early years after the war. And this first board of trustees was charged with several tasks to get the university in operation in less than a year, choosing the university's location, contracting to build the first temporary school building, and organizing the university, which meant everything from creating a curriculum to choosing cadet uniforms to deciding who should be allowed to enroll. In stating the university's admission requirements, these first trustees debated whether to open the university to women and to black students. The Arkansas trustees eventually chose an egalitarian path. They threw open the doors of the university to all without regard, and and here I'm quoting the trustees, quote, without regard for race, sex, or sect. As a result, early in the very first semester of the university, women and at least one black student enrolled in the university alongside a student body that was nearly all white and majority male. And now, how were those first trustees similar to the vast majority who came afterward? All of them were white and all of them were male, as you probably guessed. But you might be surprised at the numbers. Over the last 150 years, the university has had 230 trustees. 224 of them, or more than 97%, have been white. Similarly, 221 of them have been men, or more than 96%. So less than 3% have been black men, and less than 4% have been white women. No black women, no trustees who were Native American that I could determine. No one with obviously Latino or Latina names, no Asian trustees that I could find. How does that happen? Well, trustees are appointed by the governors of Arkansas, and all of the governors have been white men. One of the duties of the trustees is to hire university presidents, and, no surprise, all 22 of the University of Arkansas presidents have been white men. And the presidents hire the chancellors, a position created at the Fayetteville campus in 1981. And all six chancellors at Fayetteville, prior to the current interim chancellor, have been white men. White men, just like me, by the way. And just like me, all those presidents and chancellors and trustees might have some trouble understanding what it's like to be a young black woman. Our experiences in life, I dare say, are pretty far removed from the life of a young black woman. How can we recognize the true depth of meaning that a name such as that of J. William Fulbright brings to bear upon someone else if we haven't borne the discrimination produced by such a name. If, in the recent debate about Fulbright, I tried to weigh the good of the person against the bad and make a decision about a statue based on that balance, I think I would have missed the point entirely. The debate about Fulbright is not about whether we glorify or condemn the past. It is about how we proceed into the future. Am I, as a white man, capable today of stepping beyond the times in which I live to make better choices on racial issues than did Fulbright? Or will I be seen as the Fulbright of my generation, doing the expedient thing to mollify a majority group while extending the hurt and pain and disrespect toward a minority group? Which of the two hypotheses presented at the beginning of this episode will prevail? Should we blame the administration or the culture in which we've come of age? The two options aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they seem meshed within one another to me. It doesn't take much imagination, though, to think how priorities for a board of trustees and the university might change if it were made up entirely of women or entirely of people of color. Being a little contrarian myself, I, I hope to see something like that one day. Not because I think any individual member of the existing board of trustees is racist or sexist, but rather because they can never be a young black woman and bring her experience to bear any more than I can. So for today, think about the young black women who are students on campus and ask yourself, who do you think they would want to see appointed to the Board of Trustees? Perhaps a woman of color, then another woman, and another, and then 10 or 15 years down the road, maybe the young black woman who started off our tour is governor? I hope also to see that soon. Charlie
0: Allison is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. U of A continues to observe its first 150 years this fall. You can learn more at 150.uark.edu. This is Ozarks at Large with me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning, a film critic with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Courtney, how are you? I am good, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm all right. If listeners know anything about Courtney Lanning, it's that Courtney Lanning doesn't like scary movies. But it's October. And, you know, if you're going to be a film critic in October, chances are you're going to have to look at a slasher movie every once in a while. And that's what's happened this week, right? That is exactly what's happened
4: this week, Kyle. There's just no way around it, sometimes it seems.
0: All right, so what's this movie? It's going to be, it's on Netflix as of today, right?
4: That's right. It came out today. It's called There's Someone Inside Your House, which is really a pretty straightforward title for a slasher movie. And spoiler alert, someone's inside the house? Somebody is always inside the house.
0: All right, so after watching There's Someone In Your House... What do you think? You
4: know, for somebody who doesn't really like scary movies, I was surprised. This is a, a surprisingly likable slasher movie. You know, I, I'd call it just entertaining enough. <laughs> sort of like the, the Great Value version of Scream, you know, with the soundtrack from Stranger Things.
0: Okay, well, Scream was played somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Does that happen here?
4: Yeah, I wouldn't say this is nearly as tongue-in-cheek as Scream, but this is a lot of the same stuff. You got a a high school crowd and a, a serial killer in a small town and the police issue a curfew and they go to a giant party anyway. And it's it's a lot of the same stuff that you've seen before.
0: All right. As someone who was in the generation when Halloween and Friday the 13th first came out, this does sound familiar uh teenagers slasher high body count
4: you know surprisingly not really i mean this this is a very gory movie when someone is dying but it's also a slasher movie with the surprisingly low body count i think i could count on my hands maybe just one hand the number of people that died in this movie okay well
0: that's that's something um now you know, when you think of scary movies, there are there are a couple of different kinds. There's like The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock, where the suspense builds over minutes. Then there are those where someone jumps out with the meat cleaver out of nowhere and makes you jump in your seat. Where does this fall in that sort of uh, guideline?
4: You know, I'd say this this movie has its its standard horror movie cliches. You know, you've got uh, the victim hiding in the closet while the killer slowly walks by and then turns around all of a sudden and finds them. Um, you know, and there's there's some nonsensical stuff. Like the killer is somehow able to text message everybody in the entire town at once without really explaining why. So, you know, it's it's got some of
0: that horror movie camp to it. So it sounds like, because right, this is October, Halloween's approaching. This is when a lot of people get together and they want to watch a scary movie. It sounds like this benefits, and Netflix knew what they were doing by releasing in October, that this is a movie that benefits from the time of year.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's someone inside your house, makes no apologies for what it is. Uh, It's full of a lot of the high school stereotypes. You've got you know, the jocks and, you know, preps and the queen bees and the druggies and the burnouts. And uh, it's full of cliches and stereotypes, but it doesn't apologize for any of that. It doesn't try to shy away from it. Um, It's shot with some pretty good angles and slow pans and zooms that are standard to the horror genre. Uh, And, you know, the characters are likable enough, but Overall, I think this movie does benefit from being an October release. But
0: there is blood. There is
4: gore. There's blood and there's gore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you buy a can of Spam, you can't be surprised when you open it up and there's Spam inside.
0: (laughs) Well put. Well put. All right. So just entertaining enough, uh, since it is a slasher movie, what would you suggest as the cutoff date for watching? I mean, if, if someone has a child who's... 10 or 11 and they have netflix in their home i'm guessing you'd say "Mm, not so much
4: yeah i i wouldn't put this in front of a a preteen um because again there is there is a lot of blood when somebody is dying um you know and it's high school teens so you know they're smoking weed and (laughs) taking drugs and drinking at parties and getting up to sexy shenanigans this to you know typical horror movie stuff gotcha all Um, right I'd put it in front of, you know, like a 16-year-old be fine, but I wouldn't show it to your your 8-year-old
0: cousin. Right. Or perhaps your 58-year-old radio host, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So um, there's Someone Inside Your House. It's on Netflix as of today. That is not the only movie that is uh, becoming available this week.
4: No. On Friday – we are being treated to a new 007 movie called No Time to Die. And this is the last outing for our current Bond, Daniel Craig. This is his fifth and final Bond movie. Did you know that Casino Royale came out in 2006, Kyle, if that that doesn't make you feel too much older?
0: So that was with Daniel Craig.
4: That was Daniel Craig's first outing as Bond. And everyone thought, oh, this young, fresh, blonde Bond, and and he's more gritty and violent. And here we are in 2021, and he's finishing up his rodeo. Uh,
0: What do you think you'll review for us next week?
4: So next week, and and this isn't going to be a situation where I tell you what I'm going to review and then I don't. I actually have the movie in my possession already. Nice. Uh, I'll have a film uh, called Hard Luck Love Song.
0: Oh, this and, is completely different from there's someone in your house. this is yes, this is the this, other side of the spectrum. This is not a slasher movie, Kyle. <laughs> yes, not this one. This is actually inspired by a song by Todd Snyder. You're who, right. he' played here a few times right, and you know
4: there's um there's something to be said for making an entire movie after the song.
0: We'll see I guess next week.
4: <laughs> I'll see how it is. I'll let you all know
0: all right uh. Even though There's Someone in Your House is available today on Netflix, Friday, the full review from Courtney Lanning in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette? That's
4: correct. It'll be there Friday.
0: All right. Courtney, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Scott Tong. Is President Xi Jinping steering China away
4: from capitalism and back to a 1950s socialist economic model?
5: It really
7: risks. Hurting entrepreneur energy that has powered China's growth and innovation for so long.
2: That's next time on Here and Now.
0: Here and Now, today at one o'clock on KUAF. Saturday, the eighth annual Arkansas Salsa Fest will take place in Shiloh Square in downtown Springdale. What's not to love about this? There's a parade at 11:30. A mayor's proclamation at noon. Plus, through the afternoon, the Best Tasting Salsa Contest, live music from Arkansas Labanda, Los Cornelis Hernandez, Funk Factory, and Sensacion Latina. Plus, dance from Ballet Folkloria, the Chinese Association of Northwest Arkansas Dancers, and others. The Crystal Bridges Mobile Art Lab will be there, and all of this is free Saturday afternoon in downtown Springdale. O. and UAMS will be on hand with COVID-19 vaccinations. And tomorrow... At Art Ventures, a new exhibit opens, The Mind's Eye, combining the work of six artists with unique perspectives of the world around them. We're going to learn a bit more about these artists and their work on tomorrow morning's Community Spotlight with Pete Hartman that's at 6:30 and 8:30 on KUAF and also online at kuaf.com.
3: Ozarks at Large is underwritten in part by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Eureka Springs Original Ozark Folk Festival is November 11th through the 14th. This year's lineup starts with Gangsta Grass, with opening act The Creek Rocks. Also appearing is Jonathan Bird, Melissa Carper, and Arkansas. Event schedule, ticket information, and more available at
0: eurekasprings.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a new study led by Dr. Claire Brown at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences reveals women with mental health challenges are 50% more likely to experience a severe clinical condition while giving birth and pay an average of $458 more in cost per delivery. We'll learn much more about that study on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 on KUAF 91.3, and you can listen when you'd like if you subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large Daily Show podcast available through all major podcast distributors. The 21st Annual Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas Conference is Friday at the Jones Center in Springdale. This year, you can attend virtually. The theme is Reset, Reimagining Arkansas's Future. Two voices you're familiar with on this program will be part of Friday's conference. Leo Ribe, the host of Sound Perimeter each Thursday in Ozarks at Large, will moderate a session about women taking leadership roles. And I'll moderate a discussion about what's next, an examination with elected officials, and policy leaders about the direction ahead for Arkansas after a tumultuous two years in new census. You can learn
8: more about the Friday conference at
0: hwoa.org.
8: For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A juvenile novel on sharecropping in Arkansas was written at the request of Arkansas schoolchildren. Students at Yarbrough School near Blyville wrote popular author Lois Lenski to write about them after hearing a broadcast of her speaking about another of her books. Lenski accepted an invitation to come to Arkansas to learn about cotton picking, and she later said, I entered another world. I donned a sunbonnet, pulled a nine foot sack, and picked cotton with the children. I achieved a sunburned nose, a crick in my back, and about half as much cotton as the average 10 year old picker. Lenski's 1949 book, Cotton in My Sack, depicted a sharecropping family through the eyes of the oldest child, Joanda, and featured chapters titled School, Saturday in Town, A Merry Christmas, The Library Book, and A New Year, collectively exploring the family's lives. While modern readers may find the book simplistic, Lensky's realistic writing of marginalized people's lives was innovative at the time. To learn more, visit EncyclopediaOfArkansas.net.
0: This is KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville. Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Muldrow. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and KUAF is available to you anywhere when you use the free KUAF app. We are a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich, who reported on the future school in Fort Smith. And Matthew Moore is the producer of the Undisciplined podcast with Karee Batten. Also thanks today to Courtney Lanning, film critic with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Charlie Allison, executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. Additional help today from the newsroom at KUAR, public radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. Our show's theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can hear more news from our region and state tomorrow morning at 5.30 and 7.30 with Daniel Carruth. He has newscasts from the Karen Taha News Studio. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams.